Now our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 6, if you'd open your Bibles there please, to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23, which begins with what then, therefore, it's actually the word therefore, in light of the fact that you're not under law and under grace, and we've been identified with Jesus Christ, and we should calculate that, consider that, that's what Paul challenged us to do, and present ourselves unto God, therefore... What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now, when he says I'm speaking in human terms, he's talking about, I'm talking about you're a slave to something here. I mean, you know slavery because most of these people were slaves in the first century. The vast majority of them were. So he said, I'm speaking in human terms of this matter. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the inspired scriptures and the exposition later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today to say thank you for the fact that when we were slaves of sin, you moved in our hearts and minds to respond to the free grace gift of Jesus Christ, who does give us eternal life. We thank you for that. We stand amazed, in fact, over the reality that you've done that. We see ourselves for what we are. We recognize that. We recognize we were dead in trespasses and sins. We recognize we were slaves to sin. We were weak and ignorant and, quite honestly, pathetic. And Lord, we just, having read this text, admit to the truth of we did things in that state for which we are ashamed, many things for which we are ashamed. But we thank you for grace. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to allow your grace to touch our minds and hearts, develop us so that we truly are a slave to obedience and a slave to righteousness. Work in our minds, in our hearts, in our passions. May we learn the lesson of victory. Lord, may we learn the fact that you're our refuge, you're our fortress, you're our shield, you're our defense. Victory is from you. May we walk close with you. We long for the day when you will take over this world, Lord. We frankly long for the day when you'll take complete charge of us. So work this year in our minds and hearts and lives and cause that to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Tomorrow is a national holiday that celebrates the birthday and the achievements of Martin Luther King on August 28, 1963, which was about 100 years and eight months after President Abraham Lincoln signed the 
Emancipation Proclamation that freed slaves. Martin Luther King climbed those 87 steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. to address the nation. More than 200,000 people, red, yellow, black, and white, traveled to Washington, D.C. to listen to perhaps his most famous speech that he ever gave in his life called, I Have a Dream. The last paragraph of that speech says this, When we let freedom ring, when we let it ring from every tenement and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Problem is, we're not free. There's the problem. It has nothing to do with our color. It has nothing to do with our ethnicity. It has nothing to do really with religion. It has to do with sin. We're just not free. We live in the United States, which is supposed to be the land of the free. In fact, our Constitution says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when you live in this country, you have the right to go out and you have the freedom to go out and pursue happiness. You have the freedom to go out and pursue it. Question is, why are we all enslaved to stuff that doesn't make us happy? Fact of the matter is, we're all equal, all right. We're all equal in that we're all slaves. Jesus used that slave imagery, by the way, when he said that you cannot serve two masters. He's actually using slave language there. Somebody's going to be master over you. The truth is, all of us are slaves to something, and apart from Jesus Christ, we're enslaved to sin. I love something Charles Spurgeon said. I've heard a lot about free will. I've never seen it. (laughs) When it comes to this matter of being enslaved to something, I mean, just take a look around. There's substance abuse addictions. People are enslaved to alcohol, tobacco, opioids like heroin, prescription drugs, cocaine, marijuana, inhalants, and meth. Then you have these behavioral slave addictions. People are enslaved to food and shopping and working and money and gambling and sex and pornography and exercise and video games. They become enslaved to smartphones and iPad and computer addictions and laziness. So you give the masses the choice to pursue happiness. And what the people are going to do is say, okay, I'm going to go pursue happiness. I'm going to go out there and I'll be a slave to something that will make me happy. The problem is it won't work. If you're not a believer, you'll never end up happy. You'll end up enslaved to something and you'll discover it wasn't fulfilling somewhere in time. And if you're a believer and you're enslaved to something, you'll discover you are the most miserable person on the face of this earth. The Apostle Paul had clearly established in the preceding passage that we're not made righteous in God's sight by our works, and we're not made righteous in God's sight by keeping the law. We are righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ. And he capped off that section As we saw last time in verse 14, you're not under law, you're under grace. You're under grace. Now, most people don't like that. 
Most people don't like that message, and most people don't accept that message. Most people are proud, and they want to lay claim to something that they are or something that they've done. Most people love the Old Testament. They love the Sermon on the Mount. Boy, there's a good one. We'll just pattern our life after the Sermon on the Mount. And they love the religious rules and rituals and traditions. What they don't love is grace. They don't love grace. And the reason why they don't love it, Paul makes clear in a couple of passages, is because it takes any possibility of man boasting right out of the equation. And Paul knew that people who love their works and people who love their rituals don't like the grace gospel, so they would come up with a ludicrous argument that was just bizarre, and they'd say, well, Paul, if you're saved by grace, and you're saved by grace apart from any works, and if you're saved by grace apart from keeping the Old Testament law, then we can just go out and live our lives and sin up a storm. We'll go out, become a slave to sin, because we're saved by God's grace. So Paul, in this section, decides to combat that argumentation. And what he says here is no justified believer should ever live his or her life dominated by a life of sinfulness, but should live his or her life dominated by a life of righteousness. Now this passage is not discussing a momentary lapse into sin, although that's going to be covered here, especially from someone who doesn't want to admit it. This passage is discussing a lifestyle that's lived in sin. If a person is being dominated by sin, or if they're living their life in sin, there's something wrong in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And what's wrong in the relationship is they're making choices that permit sin to reign over their total body, choices they should never be making. In verses 1 to 14, Paul has stressed the fact we're united with Christ here. We're baptized into Christ. That Holy Spirit has literally put us into Jesus Christ and linked us to everything he is. We are to live in our relationship with God because of this positional union that we have with him. Therefore, we should not ever become a slave to sin. We ought to be a slave of righteousness. And he said something in verse 13 that is just so critical of this chapter. You have a responsibility to present yourself to God. Let's just talk about that for a second. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this isn't something you do at church, by the way, in some altar call. This is you and God, me and God. We have a responsibility to present ourselves to God. We have a responsibility to, as it were, dedicate ourselves to the Lord. It's possible for a justified believer to never do that. It's possible for a justified believer to actually become a slave to sin. The potential is there. But it's also possible for that same justified believer to become a slave of righteousness, which is what Paul will develop here. So he begins in verse 15, and he says, What then? The word then is therefore. Therefore, what then? He looks back to the fact you've been identified with Jesus Christ. You have his righteousness. You have this positional standing in your relationship with God that you're now alive unto God. And he knew one of the main objections to this deranged theologian group that's out there that don't understand grace and they're proud of themselves and proud of their works and they're proud of their religion is they argue like this. Well, 
If we're saved solely by grace and no works are involved and no laws involved, then we can just go out and continue living a life of sin because it really doesn't matter. I like something John Calvin said. He said, there are some people out there that think if you remove law and works from the equation, then all discipline immediately just falls to the ground, all restraint is gone. It's foolish thinking. In fact, Paul says it another way. May it never be. May it never be. That's the second time he said that. He said it back in verse 2, the same thing, same construction, and both of the may it never be statements are in regard to the idea that it's okay to sin because salvation is by faith and by grace and there's no works involved in it at all. Now the truth is, if you have a true grasp of grace, then that is a potential argument that some religious goofball can throw at you. If you're presenting grace accurately, that's an argument that you'll hear some of these people give you. And the fact of the matter is, it's going to typically come from those that are Arminian types that get all caught up with their works and their religion and all their running around from this to that. I mean, those are the people that typically throw that argument at you. Now, in verse 1, the tense of the verb, shall we continue in sin, is present. Speaking of the fact that once we've been justified, should we just continually now habitually sin so we can display the grace of God? In verse 15, the tense of the verb is aorist. So now Paul even fine-tunes it further. He said, well now, since we are under grace and we're not under law, is it okay if we just choose to sin now and then? At a point in time we sin, then we get it resolved, then we sin. Is that okay with God? I mean... Now, we're not talking about the argument of continuing in sin, but just once in a while, is it okay? In other words, in view of the grace of God, is it okay to just now and then dabble around in sin? Is that a good normal option for a believer in Jesus Christ who's been identified with Jesus Christ and buried with him and crucified with him and raised up with a new life in Christ, is it just okay now and then if we just go out and sin? Once in a while. Not all the time, but once in a while. Paul says, may it never be. May you never think like that. He uses an optative mood in Greek. It's a rare mood. It's only used 67 times in the New Testament. The optative mood is a mood that expresses strong wish or desire. And then when you negate it, may it never be, you're stressing the negation. You're emphasizing the demolishing of a previous statement. Dana and Manny, two esteemed Greek grammarians who were known for their advanced study of Greek, said when the optative mood is used, it's used with a negative. It completely negates, it demolishes the previous assertion. So when Paul makes the statement, may it never be, what he's saying is, get that thinking out of your brain. Get that thinking out of your theology. Get that thinking out of your life. This kind of thinking needs to be completely demolished. Paul says, no one who understands God's grace should ever think that since they're not saved by works or law, they can just go out now and then and make choices to sin and God will just say, that's fine. No one in their right mind should think that way. Have you seen this Gatorade commercial where they have this huge woman standing on her head doing some yoga thing? Have you seen this? I'd have loved to have been in the marketing meeting that came up with that idea. I'm thinking to myself, are you nuts? 
Are you nuts? Do you think somebody's going to buy a product with that? You'd have to be out of your mind. That's what Paul's saying here. Are you nuts? To think that God would say it's okay every once in a while, every now and then to go out and sin, may it never be. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Now the specific point here in verse 15 is based on the realization that we're not under law. If we were under law, since we're not under law, there's no condemnation for sin. We know that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to follow rigid standards. We don't have to follow rigid codes. We're not given to some type of legalism. Paul says, then do you think you just can go out and sin and make choices and God's going to accept that? He said, I don't want you ever thinking like that. And apparently that kind of thinking was beginning to creep into some of the churches. We know it was because when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, there were some believers there that were making choices to get involved in immoral things. And Paul says, hey, you need to stop it and flee it right now. You need to stop it and flee it. And that kind of thing was apparently a threat to the church in Rome. So he makes eight statements to elaborate on the point. Statement number one. You need to know you'll become a slave of whatever you decide to obey. You'll become a slave of whatever you decide to obey. Verse 16. Do you not know that when you... Present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience. You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Man, I'm telling you, this to me is such a clear counseling verse, and people don't get it. Someone comes in, I've got a real addiction here. I'm enslaved to this. People get addicted to all kinds of things. You know that. And what Paul is saying is, you know what the key to this is? It's not going to counseling and not taking medication. The key to this is your relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the way out. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is developing here, and it's so clear, is, look, don't you realize that if you become a slave to something, you give yourself to something, that will end up dominating you? Well, the key to getting out of it is that you just allow the righteousness to dominate you instead of the sin. And let's be as clear on this point as we possibly can be. Something is going to dominate you. It will either be sin or righteousness. Something will dominate your character. Something will dominate your personality. No one else may see it, what it is that dominates you. No one else may know it, what dominates you. But you see it, and you know it. And you are either, this is an either-or text here. So we are either dominated by righteousness, or we're dominated by sin. And the determining factor of what it is that dominates us is what we are persistently yielding ourselves to. So the first point Paul wants to make is that the justified believer will become a slave of whatever he or she continually obeys. If one pursues obedience to the word of God, understanding and applying the word, that person will be dominated by righteousness. If one pursues obedience to sinful stuff, that person will be dominated by sin. Three times in the verse, you read that word, upakoin, which is obey. Three times in the verse, Paul stresses that. You will become what you favorably obey. You will become what you favorably respond to. There will be something that will knock at the door of your mind. Something will knock at the door of your heart. He'll bring up the heart in verse 17. And you'll respond to something there. 
Because you're a slave to something. You're either enslaved to righteousness or sin. And the point Paul's making here is that obeying the word of God and that which is sinful comes alongside you and knocks at the door of your mind and heart and life and you decide, am I going to open that door or not? He talks about that. That this thing will approach your heart. It'll actually tug at your heart. You'll decide what you're going to do. Suppose you have two doors and you get a knock on each of the doors at the same time and you look through the peephole. And when you look through the people in one door, there's a sleazeball who's standing there with a knife in his hand. You know, if I open that door, he's going to come in and he's going to destroy me. You look through the other people and there's a wonderful person who's kind that if you open that door, it will love you. Which door are you going to open? Which door are you going to invite in? That's the language Paul's using here. The point Paul is making here is if you favorably respond to the word of God, if you favorably invite the Lord to be in charge of your heart and mind, righteousness will dominate you. But if you don't, you'll be dominated by sin. You'll be dominated by one or the other. This is an either-or proposition for a believer. You will be a slave to something. You'll be a slave to whatever you continually yield your heart to. That's his first statement. Statement number two, you need to thank God for his grace. Verse 17, but thanks be to God. And there's your key statement that people kind of overlook, but that's the key grammatical thought. Everything else you're about to see is subordinate to thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is the main thought here. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Most of these Romans at this church had experienced God's grace. And Paul said, I want you constantly thanking God, giving thanks to God. And it's interesting the reasons he lists for thanking God. The first one is, you were once a slave to sin. See, this is the way we were. People don't want to admit this, but this is the way we were. And that's why self-righteous people and self-righteous religion won't work. It wants to thank self, not God. And it doesn't want to assess oneself honestly or accurately. The reality of it was, we were once enslaved to sin. We don't have to be anymore once we've been justified, but we were once enslaved to sin. And we should, when we thank God, roll that thought through our mind. Lord, we know where we've come from here. We know what we were. We know what we've done. Thank you. Secondly, we become obedient out of our heart. You became obedient from the heart. See, this is why, ladies and gentlemen, there must be this presenting of ourselves to the Lord, because we're not talking about external stuff here. We're talking about something that takes place in a person's heart. That's why I don't put a lot of stock in external religious motions or emotions. I just don't put any stock in that. We don't have people raise hands and walk aisles. 
I just don't see that in the scriptures at all. Because this is a personal thing between an individual and God. So if you want this kind of thing to dominate your life, you get alone with God. You get alone privately with the Lord. And you allow him to take charge of your heart. He said, you thank God that you were one time a slave to sin. You thank God that you've become obedient out of your heart, that he's worked in your heart. And thirdly, you thank God that you became obedient from the teaching. Now, it's interesting the language you use here. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's an interesting word. First of all, the word form, tupas, is a particular word that indicates there was a specific type of instruction that Paul was giving. And when he uses the word teaching, it's didakes, from which we get our English word didactic, which is teaching, instruction. That's what didactic means. So what that would tell us is Paul specifically gave these believers teaching and instruction concerning the grace of God that changed their minds and changed their hearts. And we know what his teaching was. He never taught Old Testament law, that's for sure. And he didn't teach any works, that's for sure. We already come through that in the previous chapters. He wasn't teaching that at all. What he was teaching is the pure grace of God found in Jesus Christ. You don't find him teaching religious rituals. You don't find him teaching traditions. He taught grace. And when God worked in his mind and worked in his heart, he immediately went to work on revealing to him the gospel, and Paul put together this system of grace, which he's revealing to us in this book of Romans, and he taught it. And I think that is a real mark of believers that are going someplace for God. They want to be taught right. They want to be taught right. They're sick of the religion. They want to be taught right. You know, when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ back in 1976, that's the first thing I remember. I thought, I just want to know the Bible. I don't know it. I don't get it. And that was the drive. And that's the drive I know of many of you. And that's a healthy thing. That's what God does when he works in the mind and heart. So he says, you thank God that you were once slave to sin. You thank God that you became obedient in your heart. And you thank God for the teaching that changed your life. And then thank God that you were set free from sin. In verse 18, and having been freed from sin. By the way, this is an indicative statement of fact. Once you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, all possibility of condemnatory sin is gone. Gone. You thank God for that. You no longer can face the condemnation of God. You're guaranteed everlasting life because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the fifth reason you thank God is because we became a slave of righteousness. That's what he says in verse 18, and became slaves of righteousness. Now, the passive verb speaks of the moment when God made us righteous and he put us into his camp. I mean, he put us as his child into his camp. And what God did is he came into our lives and by grace he changed our desires. Our desires became that which wanted to pursue righteousness and obey him and not pursue sin. There's a minister that I truly respect that told an interesting story about a a guy who was in India, and there was like a, I don't know, like a, a marketplace, some type of marketplace that was taking place in India, and a farmer brought in a covey of quail, and each bird had a string tied around its foot, and the other end was tied to an upright stick. 
Well, the quail walked around the stick in a circle and was being, of course, held captive by the string. And, of course, the farmer that brought the quail there was hoping to sell them, but nobody wanted to buy the quail. And then some guy walked by and said, I'll buy them all. So he asked the merchant, what's your price? So the merchant gave him a price, and he paid the price. He said, I'll buy them all. He said, he gave him the money. He said, now that I own them, set them all free. Let them go. Just decided he didn't want to see the birds with strings around their, whatever you call it, hoofs or feet or whatever. And he said, let them go. He said the merchant was shocked because he cut the string. He let them all go free. And the farmer said he watched the quail and the quail just kind of fluttered a little ways away from the stick. And then they just kept marching around in a circle. He said, I would go to try to shoo them off. They were free to go, but he said they would just land a short distance away and then they'd march in a circle again, almost like they were tied to that stick. There are believers operating like that. And God says, I'm trying to shoo you away from sin here. And you don't want to let sin dominate your life. You have a righteousness of my son. And there are some believers who, they seem to just want to go in circles. I mean, they want to go in circles and say, well, it's okay if I sin once in a while. God doesn't really care about that. So I'm good to go. And then I'll, while I'll sin and I'll, I'll get that result. Paul said, don't think like that. You thank God that he set you free from sin. That he's put you into righteousness. That you can live that out in your life. His third statement is, you have a weak flesh that used to present itself to impure lawless things, which now needs to present itself to righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slave to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. You're going to serve something in your life. I'm telling you right now. You're going to serve something in your life. This is what Paul's saying. And when God saved us, we still have that old nature. What God does is he makes us a new creation, and he gives us, as one theologian said, a new inclination. A new inclination. And Paul's argument here is, yeah, you have a weak flesh. And that weak flesh you had prior to the Lord Jesus Christ coming into your heart and the Spirit of God linking you to him, just craved evil things craved it. You pursued it. You went after things with a reckless abandon. You went after lawless things, impure things. Those things were dominating your mind, dominating your life. You yielded your flesh to them. You gave in to those whims. But when the Lord came in, you have the option now of yielding those same members that were after sin to righteousness. You have the privilege now of presenting yourselves as people that are addicted to righteousness through the word of God, and that will result in sanctification. And there are three kinds of sanctification. Positionally, you're set apart, sanctified unto God the moment you believe in Jesus Christ forever. Then there's eternal sanctification when you're set apart in heaven with God forever. But then there's this practical progressive sanctification in which you're being set apart as you're living life on earth. It's practically worked out in your life. And this sanctification is what he's talking about here, this progressive practical sanctification. He's saying just as you used to pursue with the members of your body things that were sinful, go after the things righteous. 
Use that same gusto that you had to go after that. Then he says, you were once slave to sin, his fourth statement, and free from righteousness. He says in verse 20, I love this statement, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You know, there are, I would say, the vast majority of people that are pursuing sin think they're free. They are. But they're not free from what they think they're free from. They're free from righteousness. What they're not free from is the addiction that they're going after. That's enslaved them already. So they're just drifting along in life thinking they're okay, and they're a slave to sin. What they don't realize is, as long as I'm in this, I'm free from righteousness. I don't have the kind of righteousness that means anything when it comes to God. And when we were slaves to sin, we had absolutely no conviction of the fact that I'm not righteous, I'm not right with God. And the fact of the matter is, people that have never dedicated themselves to the Lord or never presented themselves to God in light of inviting the Lord Jesus Christ into their lives, those people have no concept at all, no concept at all, that they're free from righteousness. They think they're pretty good. I'm just as good as everybody else. Yeah, but everybody else is a slave to sin. I'm better than most. I'm not perfect. Nobody is. I'm not perfect. See, they have no sense. I'm free from the righteousness of God. But Paul said, you thank God for what he's done for you. And that he set you free. That he's given you a righteousness. That he's put you into his family. And the fifth statement is, you had no benefit from pursuing sin. Verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. I'll tell you what. There's nothing that will get a believer depressed faster than pursuing sin. Sin will take you down. It'll take you out of fellowship with God. It will take you away from what's righteous. It will take you away from what's clean. Sin will leave you depressed. And the fact of the matter is, to have victory over sin, and I find this interesting that Paul's thinking about this, actually. To actually have victory over sin and actually realize this grace package of God, we have to think on occasion about things that now make us ashamed They make us ashamed. If you have the Spirit of God in you and you reflect back over your life, and I reflect back over my life, there should be things that we would look at or think about or could cross our memories where we would say, I'm ashamed I did that. I'm ashamed I ever thought that way. I'm ashamed I ever said that. The fact is we all have a shameful past. Don't try to dodge this. This is what Paul's saying. We all have a shameful past. But unbelievers like to sin, and they like to keep at it even when they're addicted to it. They're not ashamed of sin. Do you think that drug addicts are ashamed of the fact they're drug addicts? Do you think alcoholics are ashamed of the fact they're alcoholics? 
Do you think that someone who's addicted to pornography is ashamed of the fact they're addicted to pornography or to immorality, they're ashamed of that? Do you think somebody who's addicted to gambling is ashamed that they're addicted to gambling? I mean, these people who are out there without the Lord, they're not ashamed of sin, they flaunt it. But believers should be ashamed of their sin. And if you're not ashamed of it, something's wrong. Which brings us to the sixth statement. You've had great benefit in pursuing righteousness, verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and outcome eternal life. But now, but now, I love that combination of that conjunction. But now, we've received tremendous benefits from pursuing righteousness. You've been freed from sin. You're a slave to God. You now have practical sanctification, and you have eternal life to come. Think about what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. So these people walking around, well, it's just okay if I go out and sin once in a while, and if I pursue sin because of the grace of God, they're out of their minds. Which brings us to his seventh statement, the wages of sin is death. Just clear-cut, straightforward, for the wages of sin is death. It's interesting to me that sin is established by works, and works will give you a paycheck. Let me say it another way. Sin will give you a paycheck. Sin will give you a paycheck, and the paycheck you'll get from sin is you'll get wages. It'll be death. Why would you want to pursue that? Why would any believer who's in his or her right mind want to pursue a path of death? That's what sin is owed. The wage that will be given is death. And if you face God as a sinner, you'll be given the due wage of hell. If you decide, I'm not going to present myself to the Lord and get alone with God and invite the Lord Jesus Christ into my life to be my Savior and take over my mind and heart, you have that right. You have that option. But understand this, you will get a wage for that. And the wage will be death. And if you as a believer decide you're going to pursue sin, it'll pay you the same kind of wage. It won't be eternal death because you can't get that. Because you have an identification with Jesus Christ that guarantees you everlasting life. But if you pursue sin as a believer, it'll kill your joy. It will kill your usefulness. It will kill your security. You'll kill your fellowship with God. You'll kill your ability to grow. You'll kill your ability to grasp scripture and your ability to bear fruit. Somebody who's enslaved to sin is never going to end up happy. And they're not going to end up with a happy life. But then he wraps it up by saying, but the free gift of God now, that's eternal life. He says at the end of verse 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice it's a free gift, not earned by works. It's a free gift by God's grace. And God's grace should so affect our mind and heart that we should never come up with the idea I just think it's okay to go out there and pursue sin once in a while. You think that way, you're thinking like a fool. I want to leave you with five practical applications that come out of Romans 6. Number one, know the facts of your identification. Know 
the facts of your identification. Romans 6.6 6 and Romans 6.9. Know the facts that you've been identified with Jesus Christ because of your faith in him. Number two, calculate and consider those facts. Calculate and consider those facts that you've been identified with Jesus Christ. Romans 6.11. Number three, present yourself to God. Romans 6.13. Present yourself to God. Look, this is business between you and God, not you and me or you and anybody else sitting in this sanctuary or watching this live stream all over the nation. This is between you and God. If you've never got alone with God and presented yourself to God, then take care of that issue. Present yourself to God. Fourthly, do not present the members of your flesh body to unrighteous things. Don't present the members of your flesh body to unrighteous things. Romans 6.13. Fifthly, do present the members of your flesh body to righteous things. Romans 6.13. Because the fact of the matter is, you will end up a slave of something. We'll never be free till we're out of here. So you'll either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. You decide. It's your life, it's your eternity, it's your call. Let's pray. If you've never personally invited Jesus Christ into your life to be your Savior, you need to understand what this text is saying here. And this is business between you and the Lord. You need Jesus Christ in your life or you're going to be paid a wage. A wage for all the times you failed God. It'll be the wage of condemnation. But the free grace gift of Jesus Christ will give you eternal life. If you've never invited him into your life, invite him in right now. Our Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who lays this out so clearly. Lord, we can just look at a passage like this. We can walk right through it with him, and we can spot times in our own lives where we did things which have frankly just made us sick. They've made us ashamed. Thank you for grace. In Jesus' name, amen.